0: Today's passage is Luke chapter 1 verses 5 through 56. Hopefully you've had a chance at this point to go ahead and read that and retell it and reread it uh, with the group there. I'm going to give you a few notes on some of the background of the passage, just a few teaching notes, and then you can dive into more discussion together on the text and what the significance might be in our lives. So just a quick review from last time. The gospel, according to Luke, is what we're looking at. Gospel, meaning a really important, really good announcement. So the author, we said, is God, right, through Luke. Luke, who is this doctor or this companion to Paul. And the purpose of Luke um, really is to, he had collected and um, kind of put together all of the different verbal and written testimonies, accounts of the life of Christ, and he'd compiled his own account to give to this Theophilus, um, and also we said probably to a wider audience of um, especially Gentiles or non-Jews who would also be reading this. Luke, I pointed out, um, claims in this first few verses of the book that this all is historical. This all actually happened. He's confirming it as historical narrative. And the main theme of the book, maybe if you can find one, we said is that Jesus came to be the savior for all people. All right. Salvation is offered not only to the in crowd, which would be the Jews, but it's offered to everyone, to Gentiles, to women, to the poor, Um, to all people, all right? So we're going to even begin to see that today as we look here. So just a few um, notes about the the context. I'd like to just move through the different people mentioned here in this passage. First, Herod. uh, This is just Herod the Great, all right? He reigned from before Jesus and John's birth till just after their birth. The main other Herod that we think about when we read the Gospels is Herod Antipas, Um, That's Herod the Great's son. He's the one who beheaded John the Baptist. We read about a little while later, and he was the one involved in Jesus' trial a little bit. But this is Herod the Great. Um, Zechariah. Zechariah is this priest, and I wanted just to to kind of um, explain what his duties would have been. He was going in to burn this incense. That was a task that was done twice a day in the temple in Jerusalem, the altar of incense. Uh, just before the burnt offering was made, and I'm going to show you a few pictures just so you can kind of get a little picture in your mind of, of what that would have been like. First, this is a, um, a r- replica um, of what we believe the temple in Jesus' day, called Herod's Temple, might have looked like. Uh, the temple itself being that portion right in the middle there. And um, here's a little up-close portion of the middle. You'll see in the front area of it, that's the, the court of the women, where women could be uh, present. And then if you go into that that um, middle door there, you enter into the court of the priests, and, and the men could be kind of on the outside of that, priests in the middle offering their sacrifices and such. And then that gold door leading into the very tall portion. There's a few steps that lead up to it and you would enter into the most holy place there. Here's just another uh, depiction of what that might have looked like from a straight-on shot. Um, so you see the altar there kind of in the middle that and then leads up to the door into the holy place. If you flip that on its side, here's what we're looking at. Again, uh, number 15 there on the right, that's the court of the women and then you'd go up uh, the stairs 14 and then through that first door Um, there's the altar again and then when you get to the that tall vestibule place that's um, like verse 3 or uh, verse 3 number 3 is the top of the stairs there you would enter into what's called the holy place um, and or the most holy place and that's where all those number twos are so there's the the candle and the, the table of showbread and 2a 2b right around there is where the altar of incense would have been and A significant part of the location of that is that it's right before that veil that leads into number one, which is the Holy of Holies. Okay, so you're from the holy place into the Holy of Holies. And that was a place that no one could go except the uh, priest, the high priest, once a year. That's where... God's presence was maybe the most uh, real, the most thick, the most palpable, that is where God dwelled. And so you're just before that, as close as you can possibly get without going into that veil when you're at the altar of incense, uh, burning that before the Lord twice a day. Um, (laughs) Here you go. This is um, the priest, this is Zechariah here, going in to burn the altar of incense, uh, or the incense. Um, I try to use free... Um, pictures that I can use uh, without getting more copyright permission so this is something that I am able to use that's all I could pull up was Kindle Zechariah Um, that's maybe what the altar of incense might have looked like I just pulled this picture up this is more of a modern-day picture of Israel but you see that temple mount that is very close in fact some of the same um, foundational stones that that temple mount the bigger picture that we had here um, would have it's in the same location. And then also you can see some of those foundation stones of Herod's temple, the temple in Jesus day still stand to this day. You can walk up and, and touch these things uh, in, in Jerusalem today. Uh, so again, just to confirm, this is a very real um, event. Luke is describing real things going on here. Um, so that burning of altar or burning of incense on the altar, That would be done. um, There would be lots cast, like our passage described, to determine which priest would do that. And on this day, the lot had fallen to Zechariah. This would be a huge moment in Zechariah's life, in the life of a priest. Um, He would have been one of about 18,000 priests at that time. And any one priest would only have the opportunity to do this burning of the incense, once in their lifetime, some people wouldn't even get the opportunity at all. But this is possibly the most important event of the life of Zechariah. Um, it's not only the only time that you're burning the incense there, but you're you're it's as close as you can get. Remember that picture of of t- to the presence of God, um, and except for that once a year for the high priest. So um, God is just behind that curtain, and you're burning this incense before Him as the Um, Old Covenant had prescribed, and uh, then after you would do that, you would go back out that door to the the courts, and the priests or priests would give um, a, a blessing to the people. The Lord bless you and keep you, and his face shine upon you. They would verbally, out loud, bless the people. So, you can imagine when Zechariah came out and couldn't speak, everyone knew something was up something was the matter so this probably right at the very beginning of the story gets people talking what what is going on here the person of elizabeth um, elizabeth was without child Uh, you you probably know that especially in the day that was disgraceful not only was it a disappointment like Um, Some women today feel when they're unable to bear children, Um, but it it was disgraceful. It was seen as, gosh, God God has not blessed you um, as he would bless most people. And um, for Elizabeth, it would have been, from what I understand, even less about, oh, she's lacking this kind of self-fulfillment, but women in the day would be more concerned about producing heirs, family heirs, like continuing on the name and the family business even, and Elizabeth had not been able to do that, Elizabeth and Zechariah, so there was some shame associated with that. Well, they were to give birth to John, and this is John the Baptist, not Jesus' disciple, the Apostle John, uh, but John the Baptist. The significance of John, um, who I sometimes call JTB, so if I say JTB, that's John the Baptist, um, we can see in verses 16 and 17 which are making a really clear reference to Old Testament prophecy. So if you turn to Malachi 4, 5, and 6, this happened um, hundreds of years earlier. This is um, the last verse of the Old Testament prophets, okay? It's written to the Jews who had come back after the exile into the land, but this is kind of the last words of God through a prophet for then a hundred years of silence. Um, And so here's what God says through Malachi. He says in Malachi 4, uh, verses 5 and 6, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So, um, Elijah had been, when Malachi's talking, he had been a great prophet in Israel. He'd called Israel time and time again to turn back to the Lord. He said, hey, the day of the Lord is coming, that day that when God would come to judge and God would come to save. And um, that whole language of, of turning hearts to one another, um, I think, is just an idea kind of of peace. It's the opposite of um, a, a selfish society where even families are against each other. And so there's just this idea of peace that that day of the Lord um, will bring. So, so Malachi was saying 400 years before our Luke account, um, or actually a, a little longer than that, um, he was saying there's going to come a guy like Elijah to call for repentance in preparation for the Lord to come. And then in verses 16 and 17 here in Luke 1, um, Gabriel is quoting from that verse, saying John is going to be the fulfillment of that prophecy, and he's going to be the one to get people ready for the coming of the Lord, which we'll see him begin to do in uh, chapter 3. Mary, um, the next person, she was a relative of Elizabeth, we learned. A lot of people say cousin, but we don't really know that for sure. She's just a relative. She was betrothed to Joseph, which and the day was, was it was a legal engagement. It was kind of irrevocable in a way, just like marriage would be. It would be considered divorce to break off your engagement. So much more significant even than our engagements today. Mary at this point may have been as young as 12 years old, but somewhere certainly like 13, 14, 15, 16, somewhere they there, very young, most likely. And um, a, a pregnancy before marriage and, not with your betrothed especially, would be another extremely shameful position in their day, and maybe even in ours in some context, um, that that Mary would find herself in. So her finding out from from Gabriel, you're going to have a baby, you're pregnant, um, Mary would have known she had the possibility of being looked down upon for the rest of her life. And there's a strong chance that Joseph would leave her which we read also at some point, Joseph had made a plan to do that. There was a possibility that she would even be stoned to death because of her adultery. Not very likely, but they still had through the law, the ability to do that. And Mary's story, if you think about it, was even more extreme, maybe than the most extreme version of this, because imagine telling somebody that you're pregnant, but you hadn't had sex yet, you're a virgin, right? (laughs) Um, I think about Mary Beth, my wife, who um, as a junior hire, I believe, she was. She didn't quite know how the birds and the bees worked. And so she thought, oh, maybe if you kiss or hold hands, you might show up pregnant. And so she would be so concerned that maybe she was pregnant because she had held hands with her boyfriend or something like that. It's like kind of like Mary said, I'm pregnant, you guys. You're not going to believe this. I'm pregnant. And they're like, well, how did it happen? Well, I haven't had sex yet. And they're like, wait, what? I don't think you understand what's going on here. Um, Jesus, the last character to to speak about, Um, the significance of Jesus is talked about in verses 32 and 33. Again, there's clear Old Testament reference here, um, where hundreds of years earlier, uh, even a thousand years, to King David, he was promised that a son would sit on his throne, 2 Samuel 7, who would also be a son to God, And that son would rule over all and his kingdom would last forever. That promise was made to David hundreds of years before. That's the whole idea of the Messiah is wrapped up with that. He's the chosen saving king of the Jews and all of that language is kind of loaded into Gabriel's description here of Jesus in verses 32 and 33. So obviously Gabriel was like an Old Testament geek. He keeps pulling these Old Testament passages out of the out of the history books and, and using them to speak of John the Baptist and Jesus. Not to mention, uh, in verse 31, uh, it's kind of a, a direct quote, though a change in tense, from Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, we see the, the same thing here. You're going to conceive a son and you should call his name Jesus. Um, but... Uh, So so we see here, not just is Jesus going to be the fulfillment of the Davidic Covenant, but also the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. Uh, If you notice at the end of Mary's song or Mary's poem, uh, we see that as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offsprings forever. So um, God had promised... If you remember our study through the the whole Bible together, the plan of God, God has promised to his people through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that they would become a nation, that they would have a land, that they would be a blessing to the world. And just like God had come through in the past, Mary and Gabriel and these people are noticing that he... He would come through again. This child that was going to be born to Mary was going to be a fulfillment to all of these ancient prophecies, uh, namely that um, his people would be blessed. The people of God would be blessed through Jesus. And I think we're included into those people by faith. So like John, this child, Jesus, is the child of prophecy fulfillment, and there's something extremely special and different about him. I want to pull up this chart really quickly. Um, Two impossible birth prophecies about two momentous people. I think that Luke is doing something with a comparing and contrasting of these two babies, and I want to just look at that really quickly. So we see um, they're impossible pregnancies. One is a a barren woman and a a virgin. Um, They're from different locations. One's from the lineage of of the priest, one's lineage of the king. Um, Gabriel is sent to both of them Gabriel appears uh, to Zechariah and Mary both of them are fearful both of them are commanded not to fear so you can see there's kind of a side-by-side lining up of these things both of them are told you shall call his name John or Jesus Both of them are called to, said that they will be great. Both of them have the Holy Spirit's involvement in the birth. Both of them are fulfillments to prophecy. Both Zechariah and Mary are like, how is this going to happen? I'm barren or I'm a virgin. And we see a difference then in Zechariah, who it says, you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled, versus Mary, who is blessed because she did believe what would be fulfilled. So just to kind of point out the difference of what's going on here, the angel Gabriel uh, showed up to two very different people, but very similar kind of an extraordinary message for both. She shows up to an older man and she shows, I'm sorry, he, Gabriel, shows up to an older man and he shows up to a very young girl. He shows up to a priest, the most kind of highly honored and esteemed position in Israel. And he shows up to a random Galilean, a nobody, in the most significant city of Israel, Jerusalem. And you could say the least significant city, the city of Nazareth. So these are two very opposite people, high status, low status, receiving impossible messages. And yet what is their response? Zechariah's response is one at first of unbelief and Mary's of belief now in their day um, and when this is first being communicated in the first century that's not how the story is supposed to go down in an honor and shame culture it's not how the story should be retold because Zechariah is the one who had a lot of reason to be praised and he's the one that would ex- be expected in this type of a story to be, be to believe the Lord and to be honored, not this lowly Galilean girl. And if you remember last time, I mentioned in this book that there's a particular emphasis on women. Well, here it starts out right away. There's there's two women in the story so far, Mary who exercise great faith, and Elizabeth, who also believes. She says, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? In verse 43. So two women who have shameful status in society, Elizabeth before her pregnancy and Mary after her pregnancy, but they're being elevated here in contrast to the the most likely to be esteemed person. And even for, in a book like this, for women to get so much focus, this would be a big deal. In fact, if you notice, it gives, in ver- starting in verse 46, um, that Mary gets her words, the words of her poem, printed here in scripture forever. What happened to Zechariah at his unbelief? He can't even talk. He's mute. So there's definitely a, a comparing and contrasting going on here. There's something going on. And I don't think the big picture, the overall picture, is about women or women's liberation, though, though that's, that's in there, the, the elevation of women in society. But I think that the story of Mary here and her song tells us this, that it doesn't matter how insignificant you are, blessed are you if you believe, if you believe that God will do what he says he will do. This type of belief, God will honor and brings honor to us. So his salvation isn't just for those who look good by status, but for those who society seems sees as less than. The women, the hungry, Mary talks about, Galileans. It's for all. Jesus came to be the savior of all. And in Mary's song, she recounts not only her, her own personal joy, but then she kind of opens it up to everyone. In verse 50, she says, his mercy is for those who fear him. Verse 52, he has exalted those of humble estate. Anyone, not just Mary and Elizabeth, lowly as they may be, anyone can experience the grace of God if they will humble themselves and believe him. So because that message is opened up to everyone and anyone who would believe God We'll do what he says. I want to just lead into some conversation or have you begin your conversation about how this passage might impact our lives.